The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision. The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. As a credit provider, I'd rather be in a rising rate market, enjoying the benefits of that type of market than a market that is really all about rates compressing and being in a pricing shootout. Well, hello, my name is Matt McCard. I'm the co-founder of Ethical Partners Funds Management and welcome to another episode of the Good Investing Podcast. Now, I'm delighted to have in the studio today, Andrew Swartz, the co-founder and group managing director of Qualitas. Um, I think today's discussion is going to be absolutely fascinating given where markets are at. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Matt. Nice to be here. So Qualitas is now in its 14th year and recently listed on the ASX. It focuses on investing across the capital structure and risk spectrum using institutional and private investor capital to fund commercial real estate debt and equity investments. Now, Andrew has had a long and distinguished career in real estate. During the early 90s and during that recessionary period, he worked at the Australian government-owned investment bank, Australian Industry Development Corporation, as Director of Risk, which provided lifelong insights into managing real estate through cycles. He's also worked for Babcock and & Brown and Bank of America. Now, to begin, what I want to ask you, Andrew, if you just tell us a little bit about Qualitas, um, your business, your team, and also um, managing over $4 billion how are you feeling in the current market environment? Great. Thanks, Matt. Qualitas is an alternative investment management firm focused on real estate, private credit and real estate, private debt. Uh, we employ 70 people across Melbourne and Sydney. And uh, as you said, we've been operating for some uh, 14 years. To date, we've done 200 investments, a bit over 200. And of that, 70% of those investments are in the area of private credit. Uh, to answer your question about how am I feeling at the moment in, in the current environment, I would say to you, I'm feeling a level of um, excitement, but also a level of cautiousness as well. And, and really, these, these markets open up significant opportunities for those in the alternative investment arena. Uh, and it really is about seizing those opportunities. But at the same time, we do manage a relatively large portfolio. So it's also about managing that portfolio. And, and just in the way you do manage that, I'd, I'd be interested to know, you know, the values of your company, given you're a co-founder and, you know, started this almost... Um, almost 15 years ago, what do you want to be known for? I think we'd want to be known as an investor who was a, a smart investor, you know, not, not somebody that was driving volume of capital based on either being the cheapest price, having some sort of pricing shootout in the market in order to, to win transactions, but someone who really thought about investment thematics and the way to seize those opportunities that were arising in the market. And, and you seem to me to manage kind of the risks of what you do as well as the returns and balance that quite well. And in, in talking to people in the market, you seem to be known for being cautious but making you know good, considered decisions. Is, is that how you think about how you run things? Yeah. I, I, look, for us, um, it really is about undertaking extreme due diligence on on anything that we do. You know, this is not a – an investment house that runs on 
intuition or, or gut feel. It, it, it's quite the reverse to that. And, you know, in order for us to deploy capital, you know, it is the subject of, you know, very detailed um, work and analysis. It involves a lot of people, um, significant external input, not, not just from external consultants in the market where we can seek uh, external opinion, but also internally as well, you know, from objective people uh, within the business. So, so I think that, you know, for us, it is about really doing the homework, being confident in, in the assumptions that we make that, that underpin any transaction that we, we, we provide. All right, so we're going to talk about um, a lot of those things that you just mentioned there. But do you mind if we if we start at the beginning? So you started Qualitas in in late two thousand and eight, which may seem pretty courageous to some, given that Australia was amidst the GFC at the time. Well, why was that the right time to start the business? Uh, it was definitely the right time because the market was substantially recalibrating. There was a lot of uncertainty in financial markets. People were unsure how to price assets at the time. And there was a general reluctance by capital providers to, to deploy capital. So when you're in alternative markets and you are someone who is uh, happy and prepared to deploy, Really, it's, it's, it's the best time from a risk premium point of view. And at the time, a lot of people really heavily questioned me on, is now the right time? Are you sure, Andrew, you really want to do this now? And, um, and then, you know, two or three years later, people said, oh, he fluked it <laughs> in terms of starting in 2008. But nothing could be further from the truth. I, I think that you want to be investing when markets are recalibrating. It is actually when you do your best deals and seasoned investors really wait for, you know, those those periods of time. Can, can you talk a bit about the philosophy when you started the business? So, you know, the structure of the group, governance, back office establishment, um, how and when you raise capital and, and, and that type of thing? So from, from the uh, get-go of the firm, we... Uh, we had a financial partner. Um, they owned 50% of the company and uh, uh, I owned 50% of the company uh, together with, you know, various um, senior executives and, and employees. And we really um, established a business plan that said uh, we wanted to be an institutional fund manager of choice based only on uh, real estate, that we were looking to achieve deep value-based investment and we were agnostic as to how we achieved um, those particular investments. So in other words, we were agnostic to whether we invested via uh, private credit or we undertook um, equity-based positions. And so there were really um, two main things that we agreed at the time. The first one was that we needed to establish a track record and the only way we could do that was to go on a deal by deal basis um, using uh, really high net worth money at the time because institutions tend to follow after you've established track record. And the second um, key pillar to our business plan was to have the best governance in place right from the start of the firm as well so that in the future when institutions looked back and undertook operational due diligence on the firm, they could see that we didn't do it just because they had arrived, that it was something we, we literally did from the start. And you, you literally can go back to our very first investment and read the investment paper, which was some literally 100 pages long that we wrote to ourselves, because we were only about three employees at the time, to, to really understand our, our conviction on that. Okay. Um, 
you know, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on this. Um, you know, we're touching this early, and it's absolutely related to what you just said. Um, your philosophy on the approach to risk management, so perhaps never been more relevant than it is today. So when you're approaching, um, you know, the potential to invest, either providing debt or equity, um, how you're looking at risk. Um, if you could just run us through that, that that would be great. I think. Um <clears throat> Excuse me, Matt. As I was as I was saying earlier, I think we're a a very um, detailed analytical investor. So for us, it really is about getting behind, you know, literally every assumption that gets committed to a number on a on a spreadsheet that we test for, you know, sensitivity analysis. You know, we very closely manage the assets that we're already in, so we're not a set and forget uh, investor, which, you know, particularly in private credit, you can find, you know, some people come out of organisations where they do annual reviews or a review of a position every three years. I mean, we, we pretty much review every position every six to eight weeks in, in quite um, significant detail. I think for us, um, particularly in private credit, we think about always having three exit options on any position we're in, a primary, secondary and tertiary exit option. So more than one way out of, of the particular uh, loan that we're in. And the other thing I would say, particularly in private credit, is we believe in what we have termed internally as our four pillar policy. And that policy is um, firstly that we need to uh, be able to know exactly the return we're going to earn from the investment before we make the investment. The second one of those is how we're going to exit the transaction. And that's where those three exit mechanisms come into play that I was, I was just talking about earlier. The third one is we have to write on a in our paper exactly all of the risks that we think we're exposed to in making that investment and why we believe those risks are largely mitigated or at least isolate the ones that aren't so we know very clearly why we have that um, significant risk mitigation. And the last one is the timing of our exit. And if you put all of those things together, what you've created is an IRR and you've created it upfront and you know you've quantified it and you're able to run a portfolio on that sort of basis. And it's one of the things I love most about private credit because if you compare that to more general equity, certainly equity that's based in real estate on a pure cap rate compression type investment philosophy, we are miles away from having to rely on any external events to drive our investment outcomes. And I think that the more people understand about private credit, the more one gets comfort out of that four pillar policy in particular. So Andrew, can I ask you about impairments, just, just given the current environment? So just walk us through how Qualitas deals with an impairment, how that compares to a traditional bank uh, and, and so on. It's a very topical question at the moment and, uh, you know, one that, uh, you know, the market is always looking for um, who's got exposures to, you know, various un underperforming positions. I think that uh, we, we really <clears throat> need to um, educate the market on uh, what an impairment means when you're an alternative lender versus what it means when you're a bank. And it goes back to some of my earlier comments around that, you know, our funds are equity-based funds predominantly, you know, they're predominantly um, in institutional uh, we, uh, t at current day, we don't have any 
uh, credit funds that have leverage within them. So, so totally unlevered funds. And, and I think that um, the misconception is that if you've got a problem loan, therefore, uh, you know, that means terrible things for the fund. And, and, you know, no one wishes problem loads, um, on, 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 you know, on anyone. However, a problem isn't always a problem because as soon as a borrower has to, uh, engage on extending loan terms, forbearance, uh, restructure, then as a lender, uh, there are, uh, there are periods of time where you say, well, I'm prepared to do those things, but we need to earn more economics out of the transaction because we're moving out of a risk framework that we originally agreed to and a price that we agreed against that risk framework. And so um, ultimately, it's about the security and all the buffers and layers that you have below you that give you a lot of comfort in, re- in regards to your actual position. But the restructure can be actually quite profitable. And so I think the better question to ask is by an investor is, does this particular loan actually result in uh, a more profitable fund as a, as a result of the you know the underlying restructure that's actually occurring as opposed to as you would with a bank immediately jumping to the worst of conclusions in respect of you know what what that position actually holds so i think that's just a maturity point matt that you know it's it's about uh really being able to demonstrate that to the market over time thankfully equalitas uh you know we've got uh a track record where we've never had to impair a loan. We've never not been paid interest on a loan. Um, I'm always scared to say that because we are in a risk business. And in some ways, at some point in, you know, if I think about our life in perpetuity, at some point it's inevitable that, you know, we'll be dealing in a position that needs that sort of restructuring type work. And I think it's important for investors to understand um, that it doesn't necessarily mean, uh, a problem leads to impairment and loss, but potentially it leads to restructure and greater profitability. I appreciate you clarifying that because this is a reasonably uh, reasonably new asset class for, for the listed market. Okay, now let's talk about the elephant in the room, interest rates. So everyone's talking about it for good reason. So the RBA has raised 75 basis points recently, probably will raise another 1% or 2% depending on uh, what forecast you, you look at. I'd like you to very simply walk us through the impact of rising interest rates on your business. So und- undoubtedly, we're we're in a, a rising interest rate market now for quite some period of time, and uh, you know this is really about central banks combating global inflation uh, through through an interest rate policy. Um, I will actually hold back my personal views on whether I think that's the right policy at, at the current point of time. Um, but leaving aside my personal views, we're definitely in that in that rising interest rate environment. And your question is a good one, which is how are we going to deal with it? I think um, for private credit providers, rising interest rates is mostly a good thing because it means our returns on our uh, investment positions rise over time. Qualitas runs a relatively short portfolio in terms of uh, most of its loans are, are variable, but also uh, most most of our loans have an average maturity of 1.2 years. So that means 
our ability to reprice is, is regularly occurring in the market. The not so good in a rising interest rate environment is asset prices. And property, um, it's, it's a bit like the equities market. It's, it's not generic. You can't, you can't talk about it as if every, every position is exactly the same and it's homogenous. Um, it behaves differently. And so for us, it's about looking at each individual property. It's about looking at, you know, which, um, uh, more inflation, uh, hedged relative to others and in a rising market, you know, uh, which positions can come under more pressure and just being ahead of the curve, I think is, is really the main way to manage your way through that. But on balance, um, as a, as a credit provider, I'd rather be in a rising rate market, enjoying the benefits of that type of market than a market that is really all about rates compressing and being in a pricing shootout. Right, I want to walk through a historical scenario here. So, so let's go back to the GFC. So the ASX 300 peaked in late 07 and bottomed in early 09. And in calendar year 2008, the ASX 300 dropped by 42%. I remember that well. So you started the business in 2008 right in the middle of all of that. Um, but, but as the Reserve Bank, I'd, I just want to focus on here just for a couple of minutes. So, so few will remember, but, but the Reserve Bank actually increased the target rate three times between late 07 and early 08, and it seems quite incredible in hindsight. But you know, they raised rates by 25 basis points in November 07, 25 basis points February 08, and 25 basis points in March 08. And then no change in the rate which at the time was 7.25% for another five months. So just before you start your business, there have been three rate increases of 75 basis points in total, and then no change for um, around five months or so. Then Lehman Brothers happened. Um, it collapsed in September 08, and, and partly due to that event and other pressures, the RBA cut the target rate by an incredible 4.25% in total over the next eight months, which brings us then to May 09, um, just describe where your business is at in May, um, in May 2009, post all that volatility in, uh, in interest rates um, over that period. Well, firstly, thanks, thanks for reminding me back to, back to those days. And uh, <laughs> I, the first thing I remember about it is ha- how excited I was. And, and I was excited because when we capitalised our company, uh, and this is now all a matter of public knowledge, uh, when we capitalized our company, we injected 40 million of our own capital into the company. And so we were really in the perfect storm, um, relatively cashed up at that particular point of time. And the first observation I would make is we took our time. You know, we, when, when markets turn, um, the recalibration takes time to, to feed it's all the way through. And we certainly didn't rush out and spray the market with, with the capital that, that we actually had. Um, the other comment I'd make, Matt, is that we were less focused on base rates. And I know you've done a lot of research in your question there, uh, but we really weren't focused on exactly where the base rates were. You know, we'd taken 40 million of our own equity capital, injected it into the company. We were agnostic to where we were finding deals. So we could have gone and bought distressed property or we could have given people uh, individual borrowers loans. And for us, it was really about what was the risk we were being asked to take and what was the return we required. And we did that in an environment where there was low demand for competing capital. So to give you an example, we were writing uh, first mortgage loans at 10 to 12% 
type returns. We were writing second mortgages at uh, 20% type returns. Uh, You know, we then spent 10 years after that going through a, you know, a a recalibration in terms of a a compressed market, but it's not one that prices off a margin against a base rate. It's one that prices capital against um, demand and supply of that capital. And mostly that capital is offshore-based capital and it's mostly institutional. It speaks all languages, it crosses all borders, and it moves around anywhere in the globe based on what it perceives as the best risk-adjusted returns. So I, I think that um, just coming back to your, your question, it was really around um, supply and demand and where we got the best, best risk-adjusted returns that determined where we deployed. It really wasn't about, you know, we're earning 1,000% over the base rate or, or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Now that's interesting. Let me um, let me go to the next stage here. So um, so we've seen you've described that environment well. Um, so 2009, then as we as we move kind of through 2009 2010, it was a I guess a recovery period, um, if you like, post GFC, and not unlike in some ways. Be careful what I say here. In some ways, to what we're going through at the moment, or in late. 2021, a recovery period post COVID. Now, of course, that there's a lot of there's a lot of differences. A lot more stimulus this time around. Um, you know, interest rates into going into 2007. You know, base rates anyway much higher than in 2020, and, and obviously the inflationary pressures are, are greater now than then. But nevertheless, there was somewhat of a recovery, um, which meant the RBS started to raise rates. Um, now, I know you've just said the base rate isn't the critical aspect, but um, others, um, I guess those providing capital may, may look at that and certainly, um, you know, it was a driver of, of, uh, of activity in, in other areas. Um, so the RBA actually raised rates six times in seven months um, throughout that kind of 2009 period. Um, and, uh, you know, this was a period that was around kind of 18 months after the business was founded. So you saw... Um, extreme rate cuts, then you saw rate rises all within the first kind of 18 months. Um, so I, I'm interested to know how your business copes with the volatility around that. Was it growing at such a at such a rate that it was less relevant as you were talking about before? Um, but I'm just interested to know how the volatility impacts things, if at all, just with regards to returns, um, you know, new fund formation, um, bad debts, whether you had to write anything off and so on. A lot in that question, I know. So you can tackle it bit by bit yeah, if you like. Okay. No, there definitely is a lot in that in that very good question. And I, I actually think the parallels between what, what's happening right at the moment in 2022 versus that 08, 09, uh, perhaps 2010 period are running very closely with each other. Something that, you know, very much been thinking about over the last few days and, and couple of weeks in that, you know, firstly, you know, the events that lead to the outcomes that we're experiencing um, can be different. If I think about 1991, 2008, and now 2022, um, the events that caused those setbacks were, were all different. But the parallels um, are very much um, the same in that you firstly get this um, shock to the system, recalibration, liquidity gets gets taken out of the system, and people get scared. And um, and generally, for most investors, you would say, isn't a rising market a good thing? And don't you want stability in the markets that you're um, participating in? 
I, I would say in the alternative markets, for us, um, I, I don't want to go as far as saying there's nothing better, but a fertile ground for investment is uncertainty, recalibration, and less liquidity in the market because that means risk premiums are going up and it means that we can earn more reward on the dollars that we actually invest. The one catch is you have to be certain about what you're actually investing in at the time. And the trick is not to go and spray the market and go crazy in respect of your capital, but rather be um, micro, be selective, but be confident in what it is that you actually do. So if I go back to that um, roughly 2009, 2010 period, and I think about some of the transactions that we did, uh, you know, f- the, the first one that um, uh, that comes to our mind was uh, a business that we still own today called Arch Finance. Um, you know, at the time it was called Treasury Finance. Um, it was a, a receivables, uh, first mortgage, high volume uh, real estate lending business. Uh, was going through, you know, a lot of capital uncertainty. We got involved. We were able to bring um, significant certainty to the capital structure of that business. And the reward for doing that was we got the business. But we were confident on the underlying assets and the capital structure that sat there. Another example that comes to mind is uh, one of the state governments put out for tender um, the redevelopment of their um, uh, new state government headquarters. And they offered a uh, 20-year triple net lease structure. And um, and interestingly, uh, there was virtually no bidders. There was um, us and our, our partner at the time, um, and uh, there was one other very loose loose bidder in the market. And one could easily have said, is this really the right time to be outbidding on a $200 million project, which still is a very significant amount of money. It certainly was back in, in that period of time. But a cash flow is a cash flow and a government cash flow is a government cash flow. And you're able to apply discount rates to it and take a view with some level of confidence. But that opportunity came to us really because of the lack of competition and our ability um, to uh, have appropriate pricing on on that transaction. And, uh, you know, the cap rates that we applied at the time we worked off was circa 8% cap rates. And you think about it 10 years later when government leases compressed all the way down to 4%, it's unimaginable that we could have had that sort of opportunity, but we were confident on the assumptions that we were bidding into. And so I look forward to these markets. You know, people wait for for this period of time. That's not my way of saying, you know, rubbing hands together and saying, well, let's just be as opportunistic as we can. It's definitely not what I'm saying. But what I do feel is that we can get appropriate returns um, for the risks that we're being asked to take and be confident in in how we go about um, pricing that risk. Right, so look, it, it, it seems like a good time then to fast forward. A lot happened in the ensuing um, 10 years, but just fast forward to today. So let's just run through how you're seeing things at the moment. There's a number of perspectives to look at here, for instance. So opportunities in which to invest, what are you seeing out there at the moment, both from a debt and equity perspective and how you view things? The, the pipeline of debt continues to be pretty strong. I, I think um, the main question for, for everybody at this point in time is, 
just the recalibration of pricing on on debt. And in my experience, it takes time for the repricing to feed its way through the alternative markets. When when you're a bank, it's easy because basically banks say, well, you get a margin over a base rate. Our base rates have gone up, therefore this is the price. When you're in alternate markets, you're not pricing off a base rate. You're really pricing off demand and supply of capital that's available and working through that pricing parameter uh, can take time and it also takes time for both the lenders, the alternate lenders and the borrowers to work out where that new price actually gets set. But there's no shortage of opportunities, but I think it is about you know working through pricing and also working through what the behaviour of the asset will be in, in this type of environment. On the equity side, uh, I would say investment thematics that made sense three months ago still absolutely makes sense today. So a good example of that is uh, build to rent. It's a sector of the market we absolutely love. It's one that makes total sense for institutional investors to own en masse residential apartments in major gateway cities of Australia. I don't think anything with higher rates um, changes any of that investment thematic whatsoever. Uh, again, I do think it's about what's the appropriate rate of return one needs to earn, but um, that's a pricing and return discussion. It's not a question of whether the investment thematic itself makes sense. I mean, interestingly, and, and literally just in the last few days, you know, we've seen uh, more inquiry around our opportunistic strategy. So, you know, going back to what I said at the start of um this discussion, our DNA is really deep value investing. That's where we started using our own money. And uh, it's something we're very comfortable doing. And and I think that, you know, again, significant offshore investors really see that what is happening at the moment may give rise to opportunistic type situational investment. Uh, unfortunately or unfortunately, however you want to see it, you know, we, there hasn't been a lot of that type of investment in Australia over the last decade, but potentially we may see some of that. And uh, and I think if that was to occur, Qualitas, who runs both a private credit business but also an equity business, is really well situated to take advantage of that. And we are definitely seeing some um, increased inquiry on, on our um, Opportunity Fund series. And I was going to ask you about that because I think a lot of large institutional investors with very long-term liabilities often look at Australia, given the relative stability of the political system, the liquidity of the currency, how well it has done throughout COVID. And it seems to me that they're there waiting for opportunities. They have the capital. Their cost of capital is 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 next to nothing. I know it's increasing around the world, but they do have long-tailed liabilities. They have got the ability to invest. So do you get so you do get that sense that they're just waiting and looking for the right opportunity. Obviously don't want to pay too much or just want to, you know, do things sensibly, but you do get that sense that they're I, 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 do, I, I do, Matt. I, I, I think that um, the question I'm mostly getting at the moment is, do I think large institutional investors are pulling back from the market at, at the current point in time? My view is um, that they're not pulling back from the market, but they are reassessing what's the right return premiums for what they're being asked to, to take. Now, Australia is seen globally as a very favoured place um, for global investors to participate in for a variety of reasons, but probably 
Um, the two main ones is the relatively low geopolitics that comes with investing in Australia. And the second main one is that global investors are always looking for that non-correlated story to their domestic markets. And I think what Australia offers is very much that non-correlated type story. So in other words, if the European equity markets you know, fell in a heap, would that really affect Australian real estate or taking it in the reverse? If the Australian real estate housing market was the only thing in the globe to pull back in value, would that really affect European equities? And the answer is it's an uncorrelated story. So for for a long time, we've been a favoured destination of that type of capital. I'm not seeing anything um, that would suggest to me that that flow of capital is... um, is stopping or ceasing. So, Andrew, you've recently announced a, a mandate of up to $1.7 billion with Ardia. Can you give us a few details there? Yeah, we're very excited about it. And uh, the the terms of the mandate are very much focused on our uh, debt transactions across across the board. So often you find with these large funds that they try and narrow your focus in terms of uh, where they would like the investment to be. Uh, the nice thing about the Ardia mandate is that it covers everything from first mortgages all the way through to uh, mezzanine loans, unsecured loans, and preference equity, which is very beneficial to a firm like Qualitas because it allows us to more fully play the entire property cycle uh, with our various underlying clients. So we're very excited about that. Uh, the first tranche of that investment was a $700 million commitment to our firm. And uh, over time, uh, assuming that all goes well, and we're going to work hard to make sure it goes extremely well, uh, certainly try our best, then uh, uh, they uh, will hopefully look to increase that commitment to a much larger sum. So, so just how much DD does a major asset owner like that do to get comfortable in awarding a mandate of that size to you? It's it's enormous. They spend a huge amount of time, uh, firstly, just getting to know you as a group and as as people, individuals. And that can actually often take years uh, from the time that you first meet a significant investor like Ardia. Uh, in, in their particular case, uh, which is very common to a lot of institutional investors, they really... Um, look at the investment thematic that you're presenting more so than the underlying deals themselves. They trust that you can pick good deals because that's what you've been doing in our case for 15 years. But it's much more about why do you believe the markets are moving in a certain way that now is the right time in Australia for them to be investing in, in private credit. So in their case, they would have focused on aspects such as uh, rising interest rates, recalibration of uh, cap rates and potentially property values, inflation, where they get uh, shelter from those various aspects. They'll uh, draw on a lot of research uh, reports that you know we, we will have produced and uh, they will have you know separately had, had a look at. Uh, and then assuming you get past that level with a, with a firm like Anadia, their focus then turns to very heavy operational due diligence. So it's all about your processes and systems governance, trustee structures, conflict of interest structures, allocation policies, 
And, uh, you know, for them, that's as much an important part of it is as, as it is the investment thesis. And, and the mandate of this size, it's not like a, an equities mandate when you can invest it in a few days and then manage on an ongoing basis um, like that. You, you've got to find the underlying opportunities to draw down on that and um, utilise the capital. So given the volume that they've committed now and in the future, how confident and comfortable are you that there are the right projects out there at the right level of risk in order to deploy it successfully? I'm uh, confident about our pipeline, Matt. You know, it's one, one thing about Qualitas, and I can you know say this for literally the last 15 years is the pipeline has only ever gone really in one in one direction, and the, and which is up. And that the reason for that is it's a function of. Uh, the size of the market that has been growing, you know, doubled in size, uh, the commercial real estate debt market over the last 10 years. And also the fact that the major participants in the market being the trading banks have flatlined, you know, over, over the same period of time. So lots of demand on, on the alternate sector. One of the things we're finding at the moment is that just the check size that we're writing in respect of transactions is quite substantial as well, um, particularly if you look at it in the context of, of 15 years. So while 700 million actually sounds like a lot of money, and, and it is uh, from a headline point of view, it is actually not as many investments as you may think because just the average check size of what we do can be, particularly in, in the type of mandate that Ardia is, we will be targeting average check sizes of 75 to $100 million type size. So it's, it's actually not as many investments as you may think. So that was part A of our discussion with Andrew Schwartz, co-founder and group managing director of Qualitas. Now in part B of our discussion, we dig a bit deeper into one of the Qualitas funds that uh, we think is particularly special, the Build to Rent Impact Fund. In an Australian first, the debt fund attaches certain sustainability criteria to its lending. We also play the now world famous either or game. And Andrew tells us about a special project he's working on. All will be revealed in a couple of weeks time in part B. So subscribe to the Good Investing Podcast to make sure you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes and for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au.